This is a journey into sound. Brought to you in living color on WTDR. I'm Tony Epstein. It's the Magical Mystery Tour. Join us as we dive into the heart of things, exploring new ideas and new ways of seeing and being in this wondrous, crazy world we share together. Lying on your back in the grass, you can't see a thing except for the clear blue sky, a few cotton wool clouds, higher and higher in the great dome of the sky, filling it with sun. And higher, filling it with song. They sound quite mad, don't they? My guest is Michael Gelb. He's a seminar leader, public speaker, and the author of numerous books, including How to Think Like Leonardo da Vinci, Creativity on Demand, and The Art of Connection. His latest book is Mastering the Art of Public Speaking, Eight Secrets to Overcome Fear and Supercharge Your Career, where he shows that public speaking is a skill that anyone can learn. So, Michael, welcome back to the Magical Mystery Tour. Thank you. Great to be with you. So, you have a passion for creativity and the art of connection. You also seem to have a passion for public speaking, how does public speaking fit in with creativity and the art of connection for you? Well, creativity is the source of all human progress. <laughs> so on an individual basis, creativity is a skill that people can develop. What does it really mean? It means finding solutions. It means generating valuable new ideas. So what an important, essential, fundamental skill. But unfortunately, most people aren't trained to think creatively. We just assume that some people are creative and artistic and everybody else isn't. And that seems to be the end of it. But yes, as you mentioned, I have a lifelong passion for helping people develop this skill and applying it to their lives, to their businesses, to their relationships. So How to Think Like Leonardo da Vinci, Innovate Like Edison, Creativity on Demand are some of the books that I've written to try to help people develop their ability to think creatively. However, I've also, over many, many years, while teaching people to think creatively, frequently doing so in companies of different sizes all over the world, I found that it's relatively easy to get people to learn how to think creatively and come up with really great ideas. The challenging part is to get those ideas into application. And that requires the art of connection. It requires the ability to build relationships, to work effectively with other people. So that's why I wrote the book, The Art of Connection, a few years ago. And it also requires the ability to present, to speak publicly to influence others in groups, to be able to stand up and make your case 
So, yeah, that's why I had to write Master in the Art of Public Speaking to help complete everything people need to know in order to generate new ideas and create wonderful dreams and make them actually come true. So one thing I'm curious about, and I've enjoyed all the books of yours that I've read and your approach to creativity and connection and life. And the one thing that, that I don't connect with is why you do so much of your public speaking and seminars for large corporations. And when I thought of that, you know, y you can probably tell that I have a kind of jaundiced view of, of that world. But when I thought of that, what immediately came to mind was Willie Sutton's response when asked why he robbed banks. And his, <laughs> sure. his, his famous response was, because that's where the money is. But I thought, it's got to be more than that for you. Or maybe there's something else in there besides the money. Well, thank you for asking this one, because yes, the other book of mine that we haven't mentioned that came out recently it's called The Healing Organization, Awakening the Conscience of Business to Help Save the World. And in that book, my co-author Raj Sisodia and I look at how companies, organizations can focus their endeavors in helping to ameliorate so many of our gravest problems. You know, it's a classic Homer Simpson line, alcohol, the cause and solution of all the world's problems. Well, I've just changed that a little bit, and it's business, the cause and potential solution of all the world's problems. So, yes, in many cases, business is right there at the forefront of ruining the environment and destroying people's lives. But the good news is business is also in the forefront of helping to save the planet and create prosperity and serve communities and provide goods and services that meet real human needs. So I'm on a long-term mission to help awaken the conscience of business. And once again, I do that by helping them think creatively and helping them communicate more effectively. My co-author, Rasha Sodia, is the co-founder of Conscious Capitalism, and he's been spearheading the research that shows that companies that actually have a higher purpose, companies that care about human flourishing and human welfare, about the common good, those companies not only turn out to be wonderful places to work where people just absolutely love going to work, they turn out to be not just companies that are loved by their communities, by their customers, by their partners, by their vendors, but they're also loved by their investors because those companies are more profitable than companies that don't have a higher purpose and don't care about all their stakeholders. So, yes, it's also nice from an individual perspective as an entrepreneur myself, as a sole proprietor of my own business for 40 years, it's nice to earn a living doing what I love, helping people. But I've also found over the years, right from the beginning, I had a business model, or a, it really is more than a business model. But I saw that businesses were the key point of leverage in helping society. And I also saw that uh, 
from my research into Leonardo da Vinci that the Renaissance wouldn't have happened without corporate sponsorship. The Medici, the Sforza, all of the great families of the Renaissance are the ones who actually paid for the art of Leonardo da Vinci and Michelangelo and Raphael. And none of that would have happened without business. So it was obvious to me right from the beginning that let's get business to wake up, to be creative, to be conscious, to be more compassionate. And then when I discovered that the data backed me up in terms of that's not just a better way to live for obvious moral reasons, but it's actually better business. Well, that's, uh, that's the answer to that question. <laughs> <laughs> well, you wrap that up pretty uh, succinctly. I mean, that, that could be a wonderful topic for a whole other interview. Uh, well, I'm, I'm happy to talk about it. You can tell I have a lot of passion about it. For that book, we interviewed more than uh, 25 CEOs and senior team members and people at all levels of some of these great organizations, and we tell their stories. And I'm telling you, you read these stories in, in the Healing Organization book, and it gives you hope for humanity. And I really believe in this idea of a healing organization of conscious capitalism, so if that idea is going to grow, if people are going to be inspired to feel that they can shift, because a lot of people are rightly, as you mentioned, you use the word jaundice, and a lot of people are, are worse than jaundice. They're horrified. They're disgusted by some of the abuses that they've seen generated by people who put profit above humanity. And so if you want to change that, you need to know how to get out there and, and talk about another vision of how how it can be done so you need to master the art of public speaking so again you see how all of this fits together it's not just random it's all i always before i write a book i i ask the question i've done this with all 17 books i've written i've always asked myself the question what is it that i know the most about care the most about that might be helpful to other people so that's that's why what i write <laughs> <laughs> that's a great question. That's a that's a wonderful question for us all to be asking ourselves. Yeah, it is, isn't it? And you don't have to write a book about it. You can do something else about it. But it is. The, what, do, what do you know the most about that you care about that will help other people? Mm -hmm. It's a simple formula. It just it just sort of came to me intuitively, naturally, right at the very beginning of of starting to write books, which I never expected to do. But uh, I wrote my master's thesis 43 years ago, and it got published as my first book. It got translated into 16 languages. It's still in print now. So I said, I guess I'm an author. What should I write next? So that, and then I developed that criteria. <laughs> <laughs> what was the title of that book? My first book is called Body Learning, An Introduction to the Alexander Technique. Uh-huh. Okay. Maybe we'll, we'll talk about that later in the conversation. So is public speaking something that came naturally for you? Well, I am an extrovert, and I do come from a family which was very verbal, lots of argument, lots of debate. You know, in high school, they have the awards like most likely to succeed or best looking. Well, in my high school... I won the award for best arguer. <laughs> and to give you an idea of 
my family. Two years later, my younger brother won the award for best arguer in his <laughs> class as well. <laughs> so when I first got invited to speak as I was doing the research into the Alexander technique, you know, I had a chance to talk to people about what, what was the technique. And I thought, wow, this is great. People get invited to give a talk and, and people show up and they just listen. They don't interrupt you. They're not yelling and screaming. <laughs> and then I discovered you could get paid to, to actually speak and have people listen to you. I thought it was almost too good to be true. So one of my Alexander Technique students, because I trained for three years as an Alexander Technique teacher, one of my students was a renowned author and public speaker. And he invited me to present at a conference where that he was organizing. And people seemed to like what I did. So he invited me to lead these, co-lead these conferences with him all over the world, which we did for a number of years. And at the end of each day of speaking, we would give each other feedback on how to improve, which was an amazing opportunity to learn from one of the best in the world. But I also learned a lot by critiquing him. And so, yes, I had a natural sense of this is a fun thing to do. I wasn't shy. I didn't have a terrible fear of public speaking, as many people do. But I spent years refining the art and, and mastering it. I mean, I've now been working on it for decades and decades and decades and saw that many of my clients were terrified that this was actually one of their biggest fears and it was holding them back in their career. So I started offering to my clients coaching and training seminars in public speaking, and they loved them. So I just have developed this over the decades, and, and part of ma mastering doesn't mean that now you're perfect and there's nothing more to learn, far from it. I learn every time I, I present, there's a, there's a learning opportunity to better understand the audience, to find more engaging ways to express the material. I'm always looking for new stories. I love jokes that relate to the message. I love making the audience laugh. So I'm continuously incubating ways to make it more effective and more engaging and you know, more valuable for, for the participants, for the audience. And that's a quest that it's really, it's really fun to initiate people into that because it, transform, it helps transform the fear. When you start to get interested in it and you start to think of this as a skill that you can learn and develop, it begins to shift your mindset. And I help people get into the mindset of a professional speaker, which now at this point comes pretty naturally to me, but I help people who are terrified change. We, we, you know, I, what I tell them is, you may feel butterflies, that's fine. We're going to get the butterflies to fly in formation. So, Okay, I'm terrified of public speaking, and apparently most people are. Um, you just mentioned butterflies. A lot of people, most people, even professional speakers and actors, get butterflies before a presentation or a performance. Um, you talked about getting them to fly in formation. What does that mean in practical terms? In the most practical terms, what it really means is to shift your 
biochemistry associated with fight, flight, the stress response. And those are the hormones, cortisol, adrenaline, and norepinephrine. Those are the ones that are coursing through your bloodstream, making your heart beat faster, making you feel uncomfortable, anxious, turning your face red, and so on. So that when we talk about butterflies, we are actually talking about cortisol, adrenaline, and norepinephrine discharging at the very thought for some people as they even think about getting in front of a group and their biochemistry is dominated by cortisol, adrenaline, and norepinephrine. So I call those three hormones, I made up an acronym, the CAN. You get stuck in the CAN. So how do you, when I say get them to fly in formation, what are we talking about in practical terms? We're talking about changing your biochemistry. We're talking about shifting to the flow of dopamine, oxytocin, serotonin, and endorphins. These are sometimes known as the happiness chemicals, the flow state chemicals. And there are practical ways to do this that are not just, you know, what's great is these are now science has validated what I'm talking about. I'm giving it to you in very practical biochemical terms. But this is what the practices, the actual practices that are in the book, this is what professional thespians, actors, actresses have been practicing since there were actors and actresses, uh, since the beginning of theater. This is also what martial artists know about preparing to fight. So I've been teaching martial arts for many, many years, and I trained as an Alexander Technique teacher to work. You know, Alexander Technique is the trade secret for managing butterflies and getting them to fly in formation that they teach at the world's leading schools of performing arts. So basically, I've taken the best of what we learn in theater to get the butterflies to fly in formation and the best of what we learn in martial arts to make this transformation and, of course, the best of what I've learned in over 40 years of actually being a professional public speaker. So what I say, and there's a whole, there's a whole chapter on this in the book, called Get Out of the Can and Give Yourself a Dose. And we go through all the different practical ways that people can change their biochemistry from the fear state to the more flow state. And having said all of that, I'll tell you something makes a, makes a huge difference. And it's so commonsensical that many people forget it. But if you want to, if you want to overcome fear, if you want to get the butterflies to fly in formation, the main thing, it helps to prepare. It helps to have an objective for your presentation. It helps to know what you're talking about. You organize it set it up so you remember it, practice it. And it's amazing how just being clear about your message and focusing on the audience frees you from fear. And then you may not even need all of the wonderful theater and martial arts techniques I give you if you just actually know how to organize your presentation, focus your message, keep it simple, and make it fun and engaging. And you know, if, I, if I tell people, people say, I'm terrified of public speaking. I say, okay, well, just tell me some kind of story about your life. Uh, what are you going to do this weekend? What was your favorite vacation you've been on? Uh, tell me about your wedding, the birth of your child. Tell me about something. Tell me about the funniest thing that ever happened. You know, people start telling you a story, and all of a sudden, they are wonderful presenters, and they're 
natural. Their body language is fluid. They don't say, um, ah, and you know, they're in the flow state because they're being themselves communicating. Well, what if you got up in front of the audience and told them a story, (laughs) (laughs) which is one of the simple secrets of mastering the art of public speaking is to speak in a natural, authentic way. And it's amazing how that organizes the butterflies. So you're saying that just preparing well and establishing, you know, clarifying one's message or one's purpose, what one's objective is in, in one's presentation, even in front of an audience, that will set us up to be able to, to remain present and, and not get hijacked by the fight or flight mechanism or, or getting caught in the can, stuck in the can. <laughs> <laughs> it definitely helps. See, here's, here's what happens. People who don't think of themselves as professional speakers, people who think that they are frightened of this, people who think they can't do it, people who try to avoid public speaking, people who haven't yet read my book. <laughs> those people those people tend not to prepare for presentations because they're in a, a state of avoidance, of denial. They're, ang- they're so anxious about it, they don't even want to think about it. So they don't just jump on the opportunity and start focusing on, okay, how, how am I going to make this fun? Who's my audience? And look, let's get re- really simple, really simple. I get people to write down what specifically do you want the audience to know as a result of your presentation? What do you want them to feel And what would you like them to do as a result of your presentation? So these three simple elements. First is, what do you want them to know? And here, the guidance is the classic KISS principle. Keep it simple, speaker. Simplify your message. If you were to simplify it to the the point of saying, what's the one thing? There's just one thing at the end of your talk. You want to be sure people know what would that be. Because that gets you really focused. Instead, see, most people's objective for their presentation, if they're fearful, and that's more than 74% of Americans, most people's objective is just to survive without embarrassment. And if that's your motivation, that doesn't help you or the audience. That doesn't really bring out your best. So instead, focus on the audience, focus on your objectives in a more conscious and creative way, and write down exactly what you want the audience to know. The missing link for a lot of people is to consider how do you want the audience to feel? Because we tend to, certainly in in business world and many organizations, academia, people don't really honor the element of feeling. But feeling is what drives our behavior, drives our decisions, People buy on emotion. They justify with fact. And we also know that emotions are contagious for better or for worse. So you need to think about what do you want to catch and what do you want to spread? So let's say you are advocating for a particular environmental project about which you are passionate, saving some wetlands or protecting 
a particular species or keeping plastic out of the ocean or whatever it is. So you want to, you know, people to know why that's important and you might have three or four data points you want to make sure that they understand. But how do you want them to feel? You probably want them to feel a sense of urgency, a sense of passion, a sense of caring. And what do you want them to do? You want them to donate money to a cause or volunteer to help clean up you know, some wetlands on a, uh, next Tuesday. So you take... You take the general idea I'm giving you a presentation, you transform it from something like, oh, my God, I have to get through this, to why am I here doing this? What, what's the point? What's the objective? What's the purpose? And you can feel just how once you know why you're doing it and you have some purpose that is in alignment in some way with your own values, with your own goals and objectives in life, then that, that just strengthens your energy, focuses your mind, and engages the audience because that's what people want to hear. And if you communicate your passion for something, well, then other people are going to be excited and passionate about it too. And, if, look, if you don't know what you're talking about, if you don't have any reason to give a talk, then don't do it. <laughs> it's just, why would you, you know, if there's no reason, if there's no purpose, if it's not to benefit an audience, cancel it. It shouldn't happen. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah. I, that reminds me of, a, a. I think there, there's a quote in, in your book from Jorge Luis Borges about, you know, if you don't have something to improve the silence, then shut up. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and just, yes, maintain maintain stillness if you're not improving on the silence. So your presentation needs to improve on silence. Yes. And if it doesn't, <laughs> don't do it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have to say that early on reading this book, you actually had me sold on wanting to get up on stage to tell a story. You know, there's all these storytelling forums for people to uh, get up on stage and tell stories. And we all have stories and we all love to tell stories. And I found it really uh, quite amazing that I had this really strong desire to do it. And I felt this, uh, this previously totally foreign sense of confidence that I could actually do it. I'm thrilled to hear that. That's part of why I wrote this book. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I caught the bug. <laughs> oh, great. You know, if you listen to this uh, Moth, for example, or these storytelling groups, you can just get them on YouTube. Just go to Moth, M-O-T-H. And the stories are so compelling. And they're just, in many cases, some, you're sure they have celebrities do it, but a lot of times it's just regular people telling these stories from their own experience, from their life. And they are just so engaging in the, the sense of the humanity and the, the connection. So, and these are just stories for the sake of the pure art of storytelling. But then in an organization or business, you're telling a story to support a particular point you want to make, an objective you want to achieve, a goal that you have for something you want to communicate with that particular 
audience. So if you, you can see the power of if you focus on what do you want the audience to know, feel, and do, and then what stories will support those objectives, and you may not even know right away which story, but then you, what happens is you start to get into this, and you're lying there in bed at night, and you're thinking, instead of worrying about, oh, I have to give this talk next week, you're thinking, gee, what story can I tell? Oh, that might be relevant to this. And this engages your creative thinking, and it becomes really fun. And then you can't wait to have an audience to test out how your story lands. And instead, of, you know, some presentations will be great, and others won't be as great. So you take the professional's attitude, which is, well, how fascinating. What can I learn? How can I improve? What can I do differently? That's what, you know, when, when my colleague and I spent many years critiquing each other, we were looking for what we could improve. We were very critical of one another, but the criticism was gold. And this is what we do, this is what I do in organizations, is I get whole departments, teams of people who work together to feel really free to, to give and receive feedback so that people really want to know how they can improve. So instead of taking it as something that's painful for your ego, it's the gift. And you're in this process then of continuously improving not only your presentations, but I, I aim with my clients to have them be renowned in their industry for being better at presenting than anybody else. And it becomes part of the culture of an organization that really pride themselves on being great communicators and making it fun and critiquing one another as a regular part of what they do before they speak. I mean, you know, before I give a talk, I always, when I'm doing a new presentation, I just always, I, I ask my wife, I say, hey, can I give you this talk and will you critique it for me? And she's a professional performer, so she's a pretty good partner in doing that. So a couple of times the Alexander technique has, has come up and I don't have any personal experience with that. I would love for you to talk about the Alexander technique and how it's so connected to the art of public speaking. And support sure. of that. With pleasure. Well, F.M. Alexander was a Shakespearean actor. He was Australian. Actually, he was born in Tasmania. And this is at the end of the 19th century, the beginning of the 20th century, that he made his discovery. So in those days, it was very popular. People would attend these one-man shows of Shakespeare. And Alexander's passion was to be a great Shakespearean actor. But in the middle of performances, he had a grave challenge. He was losing his voice right on stage. I mean, just complete embarrassment. He, just, he was literally choked up. And this was a disaster for his career. So he went to various voice coaches and speech therapists and physicians, and they all told him things like rest your voice or try these vocal exercises. And he did everything that was recommended, and none of it worked. The problem just kept getting worse. So 
he was a very persistent, practical, and passionate character. And he came up with an aha. He realized, he said, there must be something that I am doing with myself that is causing this problem. And the therapists and voice coaches and doctors obviously had no idea what it was. Now, in those days, they didn't have video, so he set up some mirrors so he could watch what happened when he spoke. And he found that as soon as he even began to think about doing a passage from Shakespeare, he noticed a pattern of tension in his neck, and that the pattern of tension in his neck seemed to cause his head to move backwards in space and his spine to contract. He also noticed that this pattern was immediately felt and manifest in a constraint in his breathing. So he thought, that's so fascinating. Let me study this further. And he found that the more demanding the passage from Shakespeare, the worse this pattern of contraction became. So he thought, okay, this will be easy. I'll look at myself in the mirror. And when I start speaking, I'll just make sure I don't contract in the way that I'm imagining is what's the cause of my problem. But he found that just having the nice intention to do this wasn't effective. He discovered that the stimulus to his old habit of contraction was so strong that it dominated his intention to lengthen up and expand so he came up with this amazingly clever way to coach himself out of this syndrome. And in the process, he became renowned for the power of his stage presence and the effortless projection of his voice. He solved his problem and his theater career was taking off people noticed this change and were so impressed and they were starting to come to him for lessons. They can you teach us to have stage presence like that, to speak so effortlessly and powerfully like you do? So he started to tell them what he had discovered and he then figured out that he could, using his hands very gently, help people free themselves from this pattern, become more aware of the tension contraction pattern and shift into this expansion release pattern. So a number of physicians came to him for lessons. That There was a group of doctors who had an amateur theatrical group, and the doctors realized this could help a lot of our patients with all sorts of breathing difficulties and back pain and so on. And sure enough, Alexander was able to help many of the doctors and their patients. So in 1904, Alexander sailed to London, partly sponsored by these physicians who wanted to have his work be shared with a wider world community. And London was the world center of medicine and theater. And Al Alexander soon became known as the protector of the London theater. He gave his lessons to many of the top professionals 
theater professionals of, of his day. And this continued until his death in 1955. He figured out that he could train other people in this technique that he had developed. So I was lucky enough to study with the man who was Alexander's chief assistant for 25 years. And I, I just thought when I heard about this, I thought this was the coolest thing I'd ever heard about. I mean, I just thought this was the way to integrate body and mind, develop self-awareness, stage presence. So I went and I trained for three years as a teacher of the Alexander Technique. And I wrote my master's thesis about the Alexander Technique, and it became my first book. And then I started teaching it to businesses, and people found that it helped them. It's a real missing link. And you'll get out of the can, give yourself a dose. It's, it's maybe the most elegant, sophisticated, and powerful way to really make that transformation. And not just on stage, but in everyday life, so that your everyday movements become more graceful, more effortless, and more enjoyable. And at the very beginning of this, you said it was a very simple thing that he learned. Yes. What is it? <laughs> Tell us about it. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, it's it's simple, but it isn't necessarily easy. It's like anything. It's easy when you know how it works. It's it's really simple is think about it. let's let's keep it really simple in a way that people can relate to if you imagine driving in traffic or brushing your teeth or cutting something in the kitchen and ask yourself the question do you ever do any of those things with more effort and tension than the activity might require. I mean, you look around at people driving their car, their shoulders sometimes are up around their ears, they're grasping the steering wheel, they're holding their breath, people brushing their teeth. I mean, just, again, same thing, shoulders up, elbows too high, they're holding their breath, they're using way more effort than they need. Uh, same thing, cutting something in the kitchen. Same thing, just standing there. People are using inordinate amounts of energy just to hold themselves up. They're tightening their neck muscles. They're breathing into their upper chests. They're leaving the belly and the lower back out of the breathing process. They're stiffening their knees. They're holding onto it. And they're not even aware that they're doing this. This is, this is the tricky part about it. People's basic pattern of tension doesn't really come to their attention until they have back pain, until they have a bad shoulder or a stiff neck, or until they are losing their voice in the middle of performances, for example. And so what's simple is an Alexander Technique teacher will help you become aware of what you're doing to yourself that you didn't know and you st learn to stop doing it. And that's, that's the great thing about Alexander. It's, it's not like Pilates or yoga or all these other wonderful things where you learn to do some exercises or move 
in this particular set pattern. Alexander, it's about becoming aware of what you're doing in everyday life that is unnecessary and learning how to stop doing it. And when you stop doing these unconscious patterns of tension, what emerges is a new integration, which, I mean, look, here's the real thing that got me into the Alexander Technique. I had a couple lessons. I couldn't believe how good it felt. I felt like I was floating. It transformed my movement so that it just felt effortless just to, just to walk. And to this day, I exchange lessons with my Alexander Technique colleagues. And the main reason I do it is because it just feels so good. It also allows me to have this presence on the stage, which I had right from the beginning of my career. When I was the youngest person in the room, I had what they call executive presence. And now that I'm older than everybody, I still have more energy and more presence on the stage. And I attribute it primarily to the Alexander Technique. So my question here is, it sounds like this isn't a one-size-fits-all thing. This is, this is applied very specifically and individually to each person. Yes. To deal with their specific issues in their body. Well, the principles are the same. The way it shows up and manifests in each person will, of course, be unique to that person. But what Alexander discovered were some systematic patterns that can be changed. He found that when you want to change this pattern, start at the top. So he found that the way people balance the head on the neck seems to be the first place to attend to because it makes sense. You know, the average head weighs about 11 pounds. And if it's off kilter, everything else is going to be out of balance, such as the simplest engineering principle. So Alexander usually pays primary attention to the balance of the head on the neck. And when people free their necks and the head starts to float on the top of the spine, it's amazing how much it frees up breathing and the flow of energy and a sense of kinesthetic lightness and ease and movement. So yeah, that's a principle that Alexander discovered that applies to everyone, but the way the way everyone manifests their tension and interferes with this, Alexander called it the primary control, interferes with this primary control is, of course, unique to them and therefore requires this one-to-one professional. I mean, we, you know, Alexander teachers trained for three years full-time. And then I, I did a two-year internship with one of the great masters in the world in order to develop the skill to really help people shift out of these patterns of contraction and into this pattern of integration and poise and ease. So this sounds like a, a very core thing that affects literally everything in our lives at a deep core level and would be a very valuable thing for everyone to learn. So I'm wondering, is there a simple exercise that you can walk us through just to, you know, give us a beginning to working with this? Sure. Actually, in the book, I take 
I take everybody through the Alexander Constructive Rest Procedure. And this is one of the simplest things that anyone can do that yields immediate benefit. It's what Alexander called the position of mechanical advantage. And what it involves is resting on the floor, supporting your head with some books, maybe four or five inches on average of height of the books. really depends on someone's unique height and alignment, but that's on average. And it's it just it's lying down on the floor with your knees up, feet on the ground, arms resting at your sides or gently folded on your solar plexus, and then just resting there for 15 or 20 minutes. There's a study published in the British Medical Journal that showed that when people do this every day, I think they found that the optimum time was 17 minutes. That what it does is, among other things, it helps to free us from the habitual compression of our introvertible discs, which is part of why people feel lighter and more buoyant when they practice the Alexander technique. But the constructive rest is the simplest thing in the world. It is important how you get into it and how you get out of it. So I guide people to take their time, roll their spine out along the floor, get that head resting on the books at the point where the neck ends and the head begins, feet flat on the floor, knees up. And then it's, then it's you know, something that's very unfamiliar to a lot of people. It's just be there and rest. You're not doing anything. You're just setting yourself up. By having your knees up, it helps to release your lower back. By having the support of the books for your head, it helps to lengthen your cervical spine. By resting on the floor, it helps to derotate the habitual overuse of one side of the body. Usually, you know, right-handers will tend to twist to the left side. Left-handers will tend to twist to the right side. So it helps us untwist just by resting there. And, of course, this, this exercise is far more effective if people use my books to support their head. <laughs> <laughs> so how many, how many copies of your books are required for this, roughly? Well, let's see. Uh, let me just check. The, if I check the thickness of <laughs> the art, what I, I'd say is if you had one art of connection, one mastering the art of public speaking, and one body learning, and a how to think like Leonardo da Vinci, that might be the perfect average height. But wow. then you could <laughs> adjust it with a healing organization, a creativity on demand to discover your genius or an innovate like Edison, depending upon your, your height and what you wanted to absorb through your skull. <laughs> <laughs> Who knew how practical books could be? See, see, there's a reason I really write these things. It's to support the head. Uh-huh. So you're all about the art of connection. Talk about how you connect with a large audience. The key to connecting with a large audience is the same as connecting with one person. The tendency, what undermines people is they think, oh my God, it's a large audience, so it means it's impersonal, I can't really see everybody, and the potential for embarrassment goes way up. So that, that's the real fear people have. And because of that, they see the audience as some impersonal, hostile 
mass. But one of the things, and this, this was a, a great revelation early in my career that transformed for me a relationship with audiences of any size. And it's, it's that what I realized is the audience is nervous. The audience is nervous. Why do you think people don't want to sit in the front row? They're, you know, they're afraid you'll, you'll, people know, comedians know the front row is going to get it. (laughs) (laughs) So, so if you don't want to be embarrassed at a comedy show, don't sit in the front row. If you like that, go ahead and sit in the front row. And even though I love comedy shows and stand up comedy, most uh, corporate presentations have a primary purpose beyond just making people laugh. But the point is, you get people together and the group is nervous. And part of the job of the speaker is to help to transform that nervousness or anxiety, to look after your audience. And there's a great thing that happens here. If you, if you focus on helping the audience, connecting with the audience, engaging the audience, if you speak to them like human beings, if you recognize the humanity of all the beings in the space, then, again, it transforms your sense of fear and anxiety and helps you be just the way you'd be if you were engaging with somebody with whom you felt very comfortable because you have a reason to be there, you know what you want them to know, you know how you want them to feel, you know what you want them to do. And despite all this, you may still feel butterflies. You may still feel this surge of biochemistry happening. But then you do, here's another little methodology. You say, instead of calling it stage fright, instead of calling it fear, you say, wow, this is excitement. This is exciting. What an exciting opportunity. I am going to take this exciting opportunity and make the most of it. So you just, you know, it's just cognitive psychology, basic self-coaching, but it really works. So what's the most effective way, or what are some of the most effective ways of connecting with a large audience? And, and what are some of the most common obstacles? Well, the most effective way is to engage them. It's to ask them a question. It's to tell a story that is related in some way to them. And it's to just do what you've been invited to do, which is to take command of the situation. There's a story in the book. I was in Ankara, Turkey for Turkish Innovation Week. I have a thousand people in the room. I'm sitting there waiting for my turn to speak. And the person before me is speaking in Turkish. And even though I didn't know what he was saying, I knew he was boring. He was some kind of government minister, and he was just droning on and on. You could see the audience was getting exhausted, and it was just not really good. But in a way, I was thinking, well, this is great, because the audience will be so bored that this is a great opportunity for me to to look after them and, and give them some energy. So... Finally, this guy finishes, and then they introduced me, and all I knew, I knew they were introducing me because I heard my name after all the Turkish, and then the guy pointed to me, so I walked up on the stage. And just as I walk up on the stage, there's a thousand people there, 
the minister who was speaking and his 20 or so lackeys get up and shuffle out of the front row. So here's a great professional presenter secret. Don't rush. Take your time. Just be present. So I just stood there and waited for them to leave because it wouldn't have worked to start speaking with people walking out. <laughs> so I just waited and was standing there, expanding, opening. My head was poised on my spine. I was breathing into my belly. I was smiling. I had a you know kind of mischievous look in my eyes that the audience loved. It was like kind of, all right, buddy, keep it moving. <laughs> so the second they get off the floor... I just turned to the audience and I said, Merhaba, which is Turkish for, yo, how you doing? <laughs> <laughs> and they just started applauding because they loved that I just was patient, that I waited to the right moment. And then I took the time to learn a Turkish word, not hard to pronounce, but I'm speaking their language literally. And then I told them the story. I said, it's so wonderful to be with you. I flew here from the southwest of the United States. I took a flight on a U.S. airline, and I got to tell you, the food wasn't very good. And then I flew from New York to Rome, and I was surprised that the Italian airline food wasn't so good. But then I flew from Rome to Istanbul on Turkish Airlines. And the food was amazing. But I said, here's the real miracle. I got a one-hour flight from Istanbul to Ankara. And on the one-hour flight, they served us Imam Bayildi. That's a Turkish dish, a delicious eggplant dish. We had this amazing Imam Bayildi on the flight. I can't believe how good it was. Thank you, Turkish Airlines. Okay, Turkish Airlines was the sponsor of this event. They were actually paying my fee. <laughs> and people went crazy. And so now it didn't even matter what I do. They were going to love me because I tuned into them. What's important to them told a story. That was a real story that really happened on the way. I didn't make it up. I knew they'd love it. I know enough about Turkish culture to know that food is really important. And I just bonded with them in the most obvious way. And then they were really excited to hear my message about innovation and so on. It's been such a pleasure to talk with you again. My pleasure. Thank you so much. Michael Gelb is a seminar leader, public speaker, and the author of lots and lots of books, including How to Think Like Leonardo da Vinci, Creativity on Demand, The Art of Connection, and his latest book that we've been talking about is Mastering the Art of Public Speaking, Eight Secrets to Overcome Fear and Supercharge Your Career. Thank you so much. And be well. My pleasure. My pleasure. Thank you.
continuing with the theme of public speaking, we're going to hear one of my favorite moth stories from Bokar Legendre, which relates to last week's Magical Mystery Tour show and to next week's Magical Mystery Tour show. Welcome, Bokara Lajara. Thank you, Philip. Well, it's awful when someone says you're fabulous because there's just sort of nothing you can do. <laughs> but um, the good thing is that tonight is a full moon, and that's the perfect occasion to tell you a story about the dark powers and witchy things. (laughs) So a few years ago, I was living on Fifth Avenue, trying to be a gay divorcee, and giving dinner parties and traveling all over the world from Marrakesh to Rishikesh. And indeed, I even had a very much younger and sexy boyfriend, who some people said had truck with the dark powers. When we broke up, I thought, I thought my heart had turned to glass and it shattered into shards. And then my whole life shattered into shards. And I remembered every disastrous romance, every ghastly divorce, everything that's happened in my failed life. And shortly thereafterwards, I got the most terrible pain in my neck. And this wasn't because some recalcitrant dinner guest cancelled just before my dinner party. Not at all. It was a serious pain that went all the way down my spine. In fact, I was so weak that it took both hands to lift my hairbrush. And I couldn't roll over in bed, forget sex. I had to hold the edge of the bed and pull myself over, and it took me five minutes to go from lying down to standing up. However, I thought that my broken heart was vibrating all over my body and that this pain was just the pain of my broken heart in my spine. And I didn't go to a doctor until I started to go blind. And then the doctor said... You have premature aging disease. I said, I'm not aging fast enough that I have to do it prematurely. He said, well, you also have ankylosing spondylitis, and that's going to fuse your spine. So he gave me prednisone, which kind of sent me into next year. Bobo on cocaine. And after I did that for a couple of years... And I really realized it was bad for me. And so I went cold turkey, and I decided to take the holistic route. Well, naturally, I started with a fast in the desert. Who wouldn't? And 
It was the very first and only week that it rained all week in the Arizona desert. My companion in torture was a heart doctor who was a heart patient. And the two of us had poncho karma together. That's when they drip hot oil on your head while four men massage you. Afterwards, we put, wrapped our heads in towels and we put on our terry cloth bathrobes and we sat at the dining room table eating sunflower seeds, weeping because we were so hungry. <laughs> When that didn't work, I thought that maybe the problem was I was a bad person. So I took a pilgrimage to Bhutan in the middle of winter and prayed to emptiness. I sat in monasteries, dusty black monasteries, with lots of ferocious gods, and I tried to meditate. And I listened to the lectures of Bob Thurman, and nothing did any good. So when I came back, I went to St. Bart's and lived on a diet of green mussels, which is supposed to be very good for autoimmune diseases. However, when none of those things worked, I was lucky enough to go to a dinner party where I met an anthropologist. And the anthropologist said, well, I had a bad back. And the way I cured it was, I went to the shamans in the Amazon, and I took ayahuasca. Well, I looked up ayahuasca, and it said, this is a horrible brew of you know, bitter medicine, and it gives you terrifying visions, and it also is a terrifically strong purge. Nonetheless, I decided... <laughs> to go to Peru. And the anthropologist very kindly organized the trip and got me a translator. My doctor said, if you get cured by a witch doctor, I'll write a paper about it. So off I went. Well, the first thing that happened was that when I got to Lima, my translator died. <laughs> So he was replaced by another translator. And this one was a potato farmer who happened to be a disciple of Deepak Chopra. So I said to myself, here we are, two foolish people going off to be cured by other cultures in the jungle. We met for lunch at a hamburger joint in Lima. The sign over the door said, Living is dreaming, and dreaming is becoming. I said, What kind of a country is this that it has spiritual hamburger joints? Well, the translator told me at lunch that he had had a shaman, prior, I suppose, to Deepak Chopra, and he showed me his picture. Well, he had on a crown of feathers and a long blue coat and a lovely necklace of bones. And if there's one thing I like, it's people appropriately dressed. <laughs> so the next day, we met our shaman at the hotel. And he arrived, his name was Francisco, in new suede hiking boots and dark glasses. And he divulged that he'd spent the morning in the internet cafe. 
Now, this isn't the way I want my shaman to behave in his off hours. So the next day, he took us to the jungle in a taxi. I mean, I thought at least a donkey or possibly a parole. But we descended in the middle of the jungle on the road and we started hiking in up and down these muddy hills through the rainforest. And I was carrying my little bean bag, you know, my little canvas bag like I take to Martha's Vineyard, only it was full of wilting Kleenex and toilet paper and bug oil. And as I slogged along behind Francisco, I thought to myself, my mother used to go on expeditions all the time, and she would have a hundred porters and land rovers and people with crates on their heads with beds and cases of rum and things like that. And what am I doing slogging along? But I thought, oh, well, when I get to the camp, I'll have a little rest and a cold drink. Well, I got to the camp, and I was led to my little hut. It was a platform on stilts, and it had four poles holding up a palm leaf roof. It didn't have the benefit of walls, and it had a wooden cot with a mosquito net and a table, and I hung up my hammock. And I thought, well, I do want to get cozy here. So I lined up my tape recorder, my copy of Proust, my Kleenex, on the little table. And I was just beginning to actually feel a bit cozy when Francisco said, lunch. Oh, I said, where's the lodge? And uh, he said, right here, leading me to another little hut just like my own with a table and two backless benches. And on the table were four tin plates with white rice and cucumbers. And for the rest of the time I was in that camp, we had that particular meal every morning for breakfast, lunch, and supper. There was, the fourth place was for Barbara, who was a German doctor there to study the plants. And she looked at me and she said, wait till you taste the tea. And I was so glad that she spoke English that I didn't care what. And Francisco said, you can't take ayahuasca tonight. I'm going to take it, and I'm going to do your diagnosis. So I went up to the hut, the ceremonial hut, just like all the other huts, but bigger. And I sat on a wooden bench. And um, while Francisco was looning out on ayahuasca, And um, I found that as I sat there for hours and hours and hours, I I was thinking again about my mother. And I thought, well, you know, she used to sit in this lovely sort of Abercrombie and Fitch chair, looking at the sunset while some bet boy gave her a rum and tonic. And here I am, sitting on this bench, listening to people throw up. Because the whole thing about ayahuasca is that you have to throw up before you have a trip. In other words, that's part of the deal. So the next day, Francisco gave me the diagnosis. And he said, a black hand came over your face. And a voice said, she's mine. You've been cursed. I said, by who? But I knew. And he said, a young man. Oh, I thought that 
good-for-nothing sexy boyfriend of mine. I knew it. And I spent the whole afternoon in the hammock remembering how, for example, his girlfriend before me, after he broke up with her, from a beautiful, marvelous woman, turned into this wizened old lady. And I thought, my God, that's just what's happening to me. So Francisco then said, this is what you have to do. First, the bonco shaman Ruperto will come and heal you with his mariri. Well, a mariri is a snake which lives in Ruperto's neck, and it was brought there by the huge amount of tobacco he smokes. So he arrived with long yellow teeth, and I sat wrapped in my little sarong in the ceremonial house, and he sucked my neck. And what happens is that when he sucked it, he pulled the evil spirit out, and then he spat it out. Well, the amazing thing is that when he did this, I saw a young, supercilious man, and I said, get out, and he just laughed. And I said, the shamans are going to get you out. And at that moment, Barbara, who turned out to be one of the most important people to me in that camp, was sitting on another bench, not on ayahuasca, and she said she saw a black animal come out of my back. Well, the next thing <laughs> was that Francisco said I had too many thoughts. Clearly, all my... Clearly, my meditation practice had done me nothing, no good at all. And I had to sit and look at a candle for 15 minutes without thinking. So I looked at it for six minutes, and I blinked, and I admitted it. And he said, start over. So this time, I looked at the candle for nine minutes, and I blinked, and I didn't admit it. I cheated at brainwashing. So the third thing I had to do was a kind of multi-cleansing, where first I had a steam bath with these terribly hot blankets in the 90-degree weather, and then they arrived with an incredible uh, bowl, a kind of cauldron of copral, which is that incense that the Catholic monks put on top of burning charcoal, and they go down the church, you know, swinging it. So they came in with that, and they smoked me all over, and I'd stand over it, and they smoked me, and this went on and on. And finally, when I'd done all these things, they said, Francisco said, you're ready for ayahuasca. So the great night came, and we're slogging up the hill to the ayahuasca hut. And I'm thinking, this is the most terrifying thing I've ever done because my ribs are completely fused because my back is fused. So I can't throw up. In fact, I can't even yawn. I can't even sneeze. And so I'm worrying, worrying, worrying. And all of a sudden, Francisco says, shamans don't care about money. They just care about healing. And I thought, he's not going to make a pitch now. (laughs) And he said, I need a school bus it will be $15,000. And I thought, wait a minute, this is the man who's supposed to protect me during the most terrifying psychedelic trip of my entire life, all alone in the middle of the jungle in the middle of the night. And he's holding me up. So I turned to him and I said, I'll think about it. (laughs) 
So we went in, and he gave me this little cup of ayahuasca. It's the most foul-tasting thing you could possibly imagine. And I sat there, nothing happened for hours and hours and hours, just listened to the people throw up. And finally, I was sweating, and I was freezing, and I was sweating, and I was freezing. And then this green snake arrived, and it had blue eyes with long, mascarad eyelashes. And it looked at me and it said, I'm going to clean you out. And with that, I turned into a washing machine. And I was the clothes in the soap and the facades. And it went on and on and on. And I was in the washing machine for hours and hours. And then the green snake came back and battered her eyelashes at me and said, I'm your friend. And I thought, oh. I love this green snake. I want to spend the rest of the night with her. I'm loving my ayahuasca trip. At which point, Francisco said, the ceremony's over. But the ceremony wasn't over for me. It was just a beginning. And I turned into a kind of rubber baby on the floor, and I kept saying, where's the floor? Where's the floor? And Barbara kept saying, you're on it. You're on it. (laughs) And so they had to put me in a hammock and carry me down to the hut. And they all went away, and Barbara apparently spent the night with me. She said, I nearly died, and she pulled me onto a mat. And when I woke up in the morning, I saw Francisco coming in, and he was carrying some grapefruit. And I said, thank God, finally breakfast in bed. And Francisco said, no, these are to rub all over you to take the ayahuasca spirits out. And I thought, he's just glad I'm still here. And he said, we cleaned out 90% of the sickness, and I saw you as a feathered angel. I said, I had a vision myself. I saw that we are all part of the big mind with different facets in a prism, like colors and personalities. And then, just as I was feeling sort of proud of myself, I realized I must get control. And I said, you have to go and buy chairs and a toilet seat. Now, the amazing thing is, he did. And the next day, he came back from town with four green plastic chairs and a padded toilet seat painted with pink and blue flowers. Well, I made a permanent mark on that camp. And, you know, I stayed on for another three weeks, and it went on like that. But when I left, It wasn't that my back had been cured. I was still stiff, and it was still painful. But something had lifted. I'd I'd begun to find the meaning in why I got this illness. I saw that it had made me stay still in the way that nothing ever had. And also, something was exorcised. I saw that on the one hand, I had an illness that I might be able to do something about. And on the other hand was, indeed, my ruined romances, my failed life, my desperate love affairs, and that that was a whole other thing. Oh, by the way, I did buy him a school bus. It turned out that he was building a school in the jungle for the children. And I mean, what the hell? That was Bukhar Legend.
that's about it for this Magical Mystery Tour. Thank you so much for listening, and until next time, take good care of yourselves and each other. And I'm going to leave you with this from Robert F. Kennedy from 1968. I have saved this one opportunity to speak briefly to you about the mindless menace of violence in America, which again stains our land and every one of our lives. It is not the concern of any one race. The victims of the violence are black and white, rich and poor, young and old, famous and unknown. They are most important of all, human beings whom other human beings loved and needed. No one can be certain who next will suffer from some senseless act of bloodshed. And yet it goes on and on and on in this country of ours. Whenever any American's life is taken by another American unnecessarily, whenever we tear at the fabric of our lives, which another man has painfully and clumsily woven for himself and his children, whenever we do this, then the whole nation is degraded. Too often we honor swagger and bluster and the wielders of force. Too often we excuse those who are willing to build their own lives on the shattered dreams of other human beings. But this much is clear. Violence breeds violence. Repression breeds retaliation. And only a cleansing of our whole society can remove this sickness from our souls. For when you teach a man to hate and to fear his brother, when you teach that he is a lesser man because of his color or his beliefs or the policies that he pursues, when you teach that those who differ from you threaten your freedom or your job or your home or your family, then you also learn to confront others not as fellow citizens, but as enemies. To be met not with cooperation, but with conquest. To be subjugated and to be mastered. We learn at the last to look at our brothers as aliens. Alien men with whom we share a city, but not a community. Men bound to us in common dwelling but not in a common effort. We learn to share only a common fear, only a common desire to retreat from each other, only a common impulse to meet disagreement with force. Our lives on this planet are too short. The work to be done is too great to let this spirit flourish any longer in this land of ours. Of course, we cannot banish it with a program, 
But we can perhaps remember, if only for a time, that those who live with us are our brothers, that they share with us the same short moment of life, that they seek, as do we, nothing but the chance to live out their lives in purpose and in happiness, winning what satisfaction and fulfillment that they can. Surely this bond of common fate, surely this bond of common goals can begin to teach us something. Surely we can learn at the least to look around at those of us, of our fellow men. And surely we can begin to work a little harder to bind up the wounds among us and to become in our hearts brothers and countrymen once again.